Hey, this is Vadim. Quick announcement. The DIY recording guys are looking for an intern. That's right. That's right. We've officially made it because we can now use the services of an intern. We are looking for somebody with excellent communication skills, both oral and written, as well as obviously an interest in audio production. And we need this for a couple of reasons, mostly to drive some content creation and just support with some uh, podcast production tasks. Some of these tasks are paid, so you can actually get paid money for, for example, creating blog articles for each podcast episode. This is something I've tried to do on my own and just am always limited on time, so I'm a little bit behind of where I want to be. Ben is incredibly busy as well. So long story short, we want to work with you. What you get other than this opportunity to get paid for creating some content is free coaching calls with Ben and myself. You get free feedback and constructive critiques on your productions, and you get to have some fun and gain some experience working with us on this podcast. You'll learn the ins and outs of podcast production, including recording strategies, how we mix this podcast, and so on. If you're interested, if, if you're already a member of the Facebook group, there is a post, an announcement post on there that actually has like an attached PDF that explains everything in more detail. Or if you're not a member of the Facebook group and for some reason don't want to join, just email me, uh, vadim at DIYrecordingguys.com. That's vadim, V-A-D-I-M, at DIYrecordingguys.com. Today's episode is a two-parter. On the first part of the episode, I interview Nick Hunter, who is founder, co-founder of my favorite music blog, which is called Fecking Bahamas. It's a music blog I've been following for a long time, and you'll hear a little bit about it. Nick co-founded this blog, which focuses on math rock. They do a great job curating music in the sphere and writing about it and helping some of these bands promote themselves. This is something that's really a labor of love for Nick, and I, for one, am thankful that he's kept it up all these years. We talk about a lot of interesting things here. We, we talk a little bit about how the blog got started and the ins and outs of, of starting a music blog, if that's something that you've been considering. It's definitely a DIY approach for, uh, for Nick and the crew. Uh, you'll learn a little bit about math rock, which is going to be your, your new favorite genre. Interestingly enough, Nick describes you know, the roots of math rock are very much DIY and kind of the, the history of it, which they're still trying to piece together, is is really in a lot of ways a mirror of, of the journey that indie musicians take today. You'll hear about how the punk roots of, of this genre really in some ways started the democratization of indie music. Um, and you'll get some perspective on where it came from and where it's going. We talk about the role of music blogs as curators, which I think is still very relevant, at least for somebody like me who loves music and is always looking for, for new music. We talk about how to approach blogs with your music and what techniques to avoid. Nick is somebody who sees a ton of these submissions. Nick talks a little bit about how to think about your content strategy and what he calls imaginative self-promotion, which I think is a really great quote that I think he just kind of dropped off the cuff. And we chat a little bit about how liberating it can be to free yourself from the standard pop music conventions, which is, of course, near and dear to my heart and the kind of at the core of a lot of math rock. But even if you're writing, really regardless of what kind of music you're writing, this can be an interesting concept to play around with. On the second half of the episode, we're doing our first ever DIY showcase, which is where we play some music from a DIY band and talk about it. Uh, ben will be joining me for that section this is something we encourage everybody to do. So submit your music to us. We'd love to hear what you're working on, what you're up to, and play it on the podcast. Possibly even have you come on and talk about it. So if you're interested in that, uh, email me or Ben. I'm at, again, Vadim at DIYrecordingguys.com. Ben is at Ben at DIYrecordingguys.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Enjoy the episode. 
You are listening to the DIY Recording Guys Podcast, your one-stop information source for DIY music production, with your hosts, Fadim Karaz and Benjamin Hall. All right, Nick Hunter, welcome to the DIY Recording Guys Podcast. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being here. This is really an example of me abusing my platform. <laughs> just uh, just trying to get to talk to somebody that I've been uh, interested in talking to for some time. So I appreciate you coming on. Uh, it's, it's good, man. I was trying to think today on when I first ran across the Fecking Bahamas blog. I remember exactly how it happened. I was, I was looking for new math rock bands, but I couldn't remember when. And looking around on the blog, I actually couldn't find exactly when you guys got kicked off so maybe take me back take me back to when it all started yeah sure sure so um i guess like when we kicked off was probably around 2013 so the project was started with uh it was my partner and now my wife uh and myself we uh we got pretty uh infatuated with uh, a math rock uh, wave that was happening in the United Kingdom uh, around 2013. There were bands like uh, Three Trap Tigers, uh, and So I Watch You From Afar, uh, etc. That were really uh, making waves in that scene. And uh, at the time, uh, a new festival came out, which is called Arc Tangent, which yeah. is still uh, still going at the moment. That's based in Bristol. Um, and we decided to just grab some tickets. Uh, and grab a one-way uh, plane fare and basically just go to that festival and then just see what happens. And so we moved to um, we moved to the UK, went to the festival, met a, a whole bunch of really uh, cool guys who eventually helped us get involved with what would be Becking Bahamas. Uh, we got heavily involved in the scene, we moved to Leeds and um, yeah, sort of made uh, a lot of friendships with, with bands and really got inspired to uh, create uh, the, the website uh, that it has now become. I did a lot of uh, writing for a blog uh, that was pretty big at the time called Musical Mathematics. And uh, yeah, Andy Crowder, who, uh, who ran that website, was, uh, was very helpful and very inspirational for, um, yeah, for getting our website off the ground. And I guess that's kind of where, uh, where things picked up for us. Yeah. So you were you're based right now. You're based out of Australia. Did you say you moved to the yes. UK? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So we we basically uh, went one way, uh, and we stayed there for um, yeah about two years. Okay. So I was doing my PhD at the time. So uh, I was uh, I, I sort of worked through uh, the university in Leeds, and um, yeah, unfortunately we had to move back just because um, I had a bit of pressure from uh, my university back in Melbourne mm. um, to, to come back. So we set everything up, and yeah, then we moved back to back to Melbourne, and I'm still here now. And um, yeah, basically just sort of running that, uh, running the website from here. Gotcha. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because I I feel like that part of the world, specifically in the UK and specifically kind of in that Bristol area, is such a hotbed for for this uh, music scene. And I was going to ask you about how and when that kind of translated to Australia, and actually maybe. Even uh, I do want to talk more about the blog, but like maybe the history of, of where at, where that began and how it's kind of traveled around the world from from your perspective. Oh yeah, that is a um, that's an ongoing inquiry for me. Um, I've been, I guess, like a lot of the emphasis of our website nowadays has been almost kind of like a personal like examination and exploration from myself uh, and a couple of other um, authors. We've been trying to sort of like retrace the steps right. uh, of this strange little genre through time. And I think like, I mean, the roots of math rock really stem all the way back to the 80s uh, and the indie rock diaspora that was happening at that time that kicked off uh, via Greg Ginn from Black Flag who started um, the SST Records label. Um, a lot of bands around that time were uh, infusing a lot of uh, imaginative uh, types of music that was really kind of low to the ground. So there were bands like uh, Husker Du, Sonic Youth, Dinosaur Jr., Meat Puppets, Black Flag themselves that were creating this really exciting underground movement that was accessible for kids. Like this was uh, a sound that was being played through the college radios. It wasn't being distributed by like Sony or Capitol Records. And I think that that, uh, that level of DIY was 
uh, really touched uh, a lot of kids at that time. And I think that that was the groundwork uh, where a genre like math rock could take shape. And um, yeah, effectively, that, that is effectively like what we think happened. So um, a lot of the math rock bands, um, some of the seminal math rock bands like Slint, uh, Bitch Magnet, uh, Bastro were all uh, in college at the time that this this uh, boom was happening. Okay. So those, those these were the kind of kids that were listening to uh, those bands through college radio and thinking, "Hang on a second, like I don't have to just send my cassette to you know Capitol Records and then you know basically you know do the the lottery type scenario. Like I could just I could reach people on on my own ground level, mm. and I think that that is kind of like the essential element that kickstarted. Not just math rock, but a whole bunch of other like genres, like noise rock and post rock. Like it was that creative freedom and that DIY aesthetic that really helped things kick off. And I think that the, I mean, the, the obvious, the obvious uh, sonic uh, component of math rock is the is the rhythm, right? Like it's all about irregular time signatures and a lot of the components that we would associate with things like jazz and progressive rock. That's what I think journalists clinged on to uh, when they saw bands like Slint and, and Don Caballero and, and so forth. So um, yeah, that's a, that's a major backtrack in time. So this was probably around the 90s. And I think through time, yeah, we've uh, yeah, I guess like the genre has gone through some pretty interesting sonic changes. We're not seeing uh, as much of the um, sort of noise rock heavy quality of early math rock nowadays we're seeing a lot of really sort of noodly tappy sort of clean toned sort of guitar based math rock so it's i don't know it's been like a really it's been a really strange journey for math rock and it's something that we've been trying to uh yeah trying to understand uh from a historical perspective that's uh, that's really interesting I, I actually for people who may not be familiar with the genre I think I can't remember if it was one of your articles or somewhere else on the blog, but I saw it described as uh, like jazz punk. I think was was kind of the description <laughs> there, which I think is actually really really accurate. But one of the things that's yeah, so fa- yeah. fascinating to me about it is is this DIY kind of mentality, which obviously we're a DIY recording podcast. Today, I feel like you know there's as many genres as the eye can see, and it's really interesting to hear you talk about kind of the roots here of these college kids realizing that they could be basically indie artists through these different distribution channels and maybe talk a little bit about that and how that's changed over time. Like you mentioned, which I didn't even think about this, but that's a great point is like college radio stations where maybe disc jockeys can play more of what they want. They're not really tied to record labels. And so you had that as kind of this underground distribution channel. I'm sure that's evolved a lot over time to the point today we have digital distribution and so on. Maybe talk about that evolution and how it's affected indie artists or math rock artists in particular. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, the, I guess the democratization of this whole this whole scape is has changed dramatically. Like, yeah, as I said, like, in, back in that day, college radio was, like, the way of sort of breaking the boundaries so that, like, you're not just being fed, I don't know, Rod Stewart. You're getting, like, you know, you're getting local artists you're getting local djs uh getting access to uh artists that they connect with on their own sort of level um i think that yeah back in the day college radio served a huge purpose and and it still does right Mm. um zines were also uh incredibly uh incredibly effective for uh, a very localized sort of um reach of kids um but i guess like i mean you look now like the the, the game has changed dramatically with um, the t- like democratic platforms like uh, like Bandcamp, um, mm. SoundCloud. The amount of tools that are available to artists now is so much more than it was. And I think like in terms of a um, for what we do as journalists and trying to sort of backtrack and understand uh, a very niche genre like math rock, that can be really hard because a lot of what was happening was in you know like zines that were like xeroxed and haven't really made it onto into the digital space so we can't really access a lot of the critical information to uh you know to understand particular questions that we want to understand like a lot of that was very uh print based and very physical Mm. and unfortunately a lot of math rocks history um as a result of it being such a niche genre hasn't really made it onto 
into the digital space. I didn't think about that. So I would imagine with something like that too, um, obviously today with platforms like Bandcamp, as an artist, it's nice. And as a listener, because the reach is kind of global. Like I can go and do this regularly. I can go on Bandcamp and type in math rock and get bands from all over the world that have really classified themselves as math rock, which is really cool on the one hand. On the other hand, I imagine it's maybe makes it more difficult both for journalists and for artists to kind of cut through the noise a little bit, right? There's there's a lot more yeah. out there, so there's yeah. a lot more to kind of get through. Maybe talk about it from the perspective of either a listener or the blog on how you guys go about keeping your fingers on the pulse and finding out about new bands that are out there and so on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, yeah, I guess that's the inevitable fate with a lot of these resources is that it's kind of like a yelling contest in a, in a way. Like, <laughs> right. you have to, you know, you have to, you know, promote more than the other guy. It's almost very... I was going to say Darwinian, but it's probably that's probably too nice a term. Like it's just <laughs> everywhere. It's just like a huge room, right? Like where you basically have to out, you know, out to other people. And I think that like that's definitely been uh, one of the the ways in which a blog can help with that because you're we're effectively curating um, or funneling um, what to listen to. Um, so I guess a, glo- a blog has kind of served that purpose, but I think like nowadays that there there is probably there are other ways in which bands can yell louder, so to speak, and that's through their content. I think that you know music has become much more of a like a content and a visual based thing than ever before, and I think one of the the key examples of that, at least in the math rock space, has been uh, Marcus Menner of the band Standards, mm. who is an excellent musician and I think that one of his key traits in going from uh, you know from the very start of his project to where he is now which is at the very top of math rock um, has been through the way that he's delivered his content like he is not just a fantastic player but he's really good at marketing himself through he, he makes viral videos he's made like some classic like you know he's playing two guitars at once uh he, he was um he did like a live session where his drummer was playing like a hello kitty drum set like this is just stuff that's kind of like you know it's stuff that can be shared like that can be enjoyed by multiple people and i think that that level of um yeah sort of imaginative self-promotion has helped people you know speak a bit louder so i think that there are like there are definitely ways in which blogs but also the musicians themselves can i guess sort of like come like sort of rise just a little bit higher than their peers Mm, yeah marcos is a great example and one of the things about his videos is that they're so accessible. Like he, he seems like yes, a regular yeah. guy having fun playing the guitar. He happens to be amazing at it. But that type of personality, I feel like was more difficult for artists to, to kind of get across in the past. And as a result, you had these kind of outsized personalities in the 80s and 90s that were kind of larger than life, but maybe weren't real. Uh, where now yeah, there's... Sure, sure. Yeah. If you have anything else to add on that, please go ahead. Yeah, I guess I was just going to quickly say that, I mean, it's it's kind of like, yeah, I mean, in the past, like, the way that that is being shown to people is through someone else's words, right? Like, it's just a journalist sort of recounting. But now, like, you know, like, the now the floor is the artists, you know, with, like, social media and, 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 and Discord and Twitch, all of these really, these newer ways of communicating your content, like... Again, I guess that's kind of like, yeah, just democratizing the game a little bit more. Mm. So for for artists who are writing music, recording music, and interested in knowing where to direct their attention, I mean, talk about the role of, of blogs and playlists and kind of what you see out there and uh, what are the important kind of things to focus on and so on. Yeah, sure. I think that like, I mean, to be completely honest, I feel like blogs are like the the role of blogs has definitely corroded with time Hmm. like i think that the the onus on the artist to self-promote and be involved in at least i'm just talking within within math rock actually which is a really good example it's kind of like a closed system or a um i hate this word but a petri dish in some ways (laughs) because it's you know it's a it's a small but a very strong and vibrant community so it's a good way to sort of get some um, perspective on these things I think that that in in the math rock space or in the niche rock space, like 
being involved in a, in a social media circle, being involved in a Facebook group or like posting your stuff on a Reddit is, can be even more, uh, I guess, positive or advantageous than having your stuff like premiered on a blog mm. like ours. I think that like we still have a role, but I think that our, our stake has kind of decreased with time. I think we still have a purpose, but it's not the be all and end all. In, in some ways, I think that the um, there are many things that an artist can do outside of the blog sphere that could really help them. Mm, yeah, that that's uh, that might be a little bit genre specific too. I do notice. Yeah, in yeah. The, in the the math rock community actually tends to be fairly receptive towards each other's music, and that's a very positive. Yeah, thing. sure. I I don't know. I don't have a ton of experience doing this from the artist's point of view, but I don't, I would imagine there's Facebook groups where everybody it's, it's like you said, it's a shouting match of everybody posting like, Hey, check out this new riff, check out my new band. And I don't know how how productive that would be. I like what you said about, you know, the role of the blog as being kind of, you know, they're curating your experience. You're almost putting your faith into the tastes of other people. Like one thing I love about Viking Bahamas is you guys have that, um, you kind of categorize releases, right? Where like for me, like yeah, the yeah, uh, yeah. the Macho Party riffs is like I find I find a lot of bands I like in there. I just know like okay, whoever's compiling <laughs> that has my tastes uh, down. So <laughs> from nice. that standpoint, oh, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah. So from that standpoint, I feel like there's still a relevant role there for people who are actively seeking music and specifically in in those kind of more niche genres um and i would imagine playlists have a similar role although i i personally haven't haven't had a lot of uh experiences with those you touched on this with you know some bands kind of being more successful kind of cutting through the noise a little bit better and obviously original content is part of that uh anything else you can say about that um on you know as again as as kind of a bit of advice for bands or musicians trying to to cut through on what are some of the traits or characteristics that help you succeed Sure. I mean, like, I guess, like, from from our perspective as a blog, like, well, let's take the case of, like, you know, someone maybe, like, making a submission to us. I think that, like, the the key thing, like, for for us is to be genuine. Like, is to say what you're about. Um, write it as a, like, write it in a, in a personal way. Like, <laughs> I hate male chimps <laughs> with a passion because we get so, like, I guess you got to understand, like, from... You know, from a blog's perspective, we get stacks of submissions. Like, that should go without saying. And a lot of them, I would say at least 85% of them, are just generic MailChimps and have no... Like, people have clearly not looked at our scope. It's it's a bunch of, you know, PR companies that have basically just mass-sent a whole bunch of stuff. So, I guess, like, for me, um, in curating our content, I'm basically looking for an email that's genuinely trying to make a connection with me that I know isn't like just this en masse distribution of, you know, some hip hop artist, you know, um, I think that like, yeah, establishing like a proper connection is really important. Um, explaining your music, um, like you don't have to go to the level of, you know, talking through the themes or anything like that, but like maybe who who you sound like, who you take influence Mm. from, um, what you're trying to do. Um, and then basically, you know, just give us a link. Like, we, we try to listen to as much as we can. Like, I mean, like, all the guys on the team, like, you know, this obviously, you know, isn't our day job. Like, these are things that we do, you know, once we clock off work. And so, yeah, just getting something that's, you know, simple, straightforward, um, has a link where we can listen to it. Um, we can say, yeah, all right, let's put this aside and let's see uh, if we can blend this into the website. Yeah, that's huge. It, it's it's so interesting. I think about this all the time, too. With, with social media, you know, we've kind of we each have a platform yeah yeah and people people use it in a way that they would never act in real life like you would never go to a, a party and just walk in and just start shouting <laughs> at people right that's right that's like you right. would never do that so and yet the tendency is to want to to do that on social media and i've i think you're absolutely right there that as an artist or as like from my perspective as a person reaching out to a potential artist that i want to work with you get so much more by having fewer high quality interactions and actually trying to make a connection with people than you do just like copy pasting mm. the same the same message over and over again. So I think that's a it's great to hear that that's your perspective as well from a from a blog standpoint. So 
maybe going back a little bit, you started talking a little bit about the start of the blog, but um, maybe just 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 tell me a little bit more about how how something like that gets off the ground. And I think I mean you guys have a global team. Um, maybe just talk about how. The, the, again, how it started and how you function today and how you see what you do today. Yeah, sure, sure. It's a good question. Um, I mean, yeah, I guess in some ways, like, we did really well really quickly. And I, I um, it took me a while to really try and figure out, like, what really brought that on. And I think that, like, it came down to having, like, a couple of, a couple of things that invited people in. So when we started, like, one of the, one of the key things that we really wanted to do, as I mentioned earlier, was kind of be a bit more egalitarian with um who we who we um like supported and who we put on the website and one of the ways in which we thought we could do that was through making this uh this interactive map where we basically went like got as many math rock bands from around the world that we could find and then basically amalgamate them all in this one sort of interactive map system Mm -hmm. and that kind of worked in our favor because when we uh, when we listed all of those bands out and we put like a link for each of the bands, um, most of those were Bandcamp links, and the bands found out that we were linking their music, and so when they saw that they were on this map, then they instantly shared it. So they said, "Hey guys, have you seen this map? I'm 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 on this map." And then it's like, and then all the other bands are like, "Holy crap, I am too!" Like so, that sort of kicked things off, and we didn't really know that that was going to happen. So we had already kind of like achieved this sort of warm relationship with uh, a lot of bands from not you know not just in like the the curious like uk and us but like from peru and like all these other places so i think that really kind of set us up and the other thing that we did is we started um we we released regular compilations through Bandcamp that are free and it's basically kind of like a, a curated playlist of a particular country so um when we started off um uh, the Japanese math rock scene, which is a, a really exciting and really vibrant math rock community, or they call it post rock, um, that was kind of like an enigma uh, around that time. So, so some of the key math rock bands um, from Japan are bands like Toe, like Light, Trico, who are incredibly popular um, in uh, Western audiences as, as well as their own local audience. And uh, that was kind of like a hole. And we kind of thought maybe if we kind of, why don't, why don't we make a compilation that's specifically a, a Japanese math rock compilation and we'll just do a lot of research into bands that are in the scene and, and bring that to uh, a more international audience. And uh, I guess one of the reasons that they were in an is because, you know, a lot of Japanese people don't really use Facebook, for example, or don't use Bandcamp. Um, and a lot of the way that that uh, industry works is around major labels. So... The, the DIY element, at least back in that time, um, was a little bit um, was a little bit different, and so I think that um, by putting out that compilation again, that was uh, extremely helpful uh, for people within that, that, that were math rock enthusiasts because we were able to sort of tap into that uh, that elusive uh, scene. What about from like a like a technical standpoint? I mean, you guys have a it's a very attractive blog. It's very well put together. Was that something that you had background in, or like how did that come about? <laughs> wow, <laughs> no, actually, we had, we had um, very little, um, very little expertise. Uh, actually, it was um, a lot. A lot of that stuff was uh, just through learning um, WordPress. Um, right. Working for Musical Mathematics was was pretty helpful there too. Um, so Andy Crowder is is like a whiz in that sort of stuff. So he was the, the editor of Musical Mathematics. Mm. Um, and when I was writing for them, um, I got to sort of, you know, see how things were set up and like, not in a, not in a plagiarizing way or anything about that, but at least it sort of gave me inspiration on how to, um, how the nuts and bolts could be placed mm. and how I could make my own resource um, on my own terms. Um, so, yeah, that, that was definitely helpful. My, my wife, um, God bless her, she slaved away. Uh, and learn JavaScript to, <laughs> to make that interactive math rock map. She went to such levels to learn that and put that thing together. Like wow. um, that was that was probably the 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 most laborious part of, of setting up the website was that that map. But we were like, no, it has to be like that. That like was going to be like the the magnum opus. Like back at that time, we was like, we have to have that map up. It's kind of like a a Lamarckian style like evolution with things. Like you build something. 
and then you just build again, 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 right? Like you just like things you, things take shape, and then you basically just like like you take that little bit of code, put it there, and you basically just build things that way. Like you don't have to write things from scratch, right? right. Like for a lot of the things that we set up, like we've already once you built the code, you just put the code somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. There's there's more and more tools for that. I mean, definitely for artists listening, like you gotta you gotta pick and choose your battles here i would say unless you have like some really creative ideas on you know something like an interactive map if that's going to serve you uh but in general yeah that's that's one of the things you for artists i would say maybe makes more sense to go with like a wix stock templated you know you get something attractive and functional uh, (laughs) unless you have an an interesting idea but i will tell you i spent four hours today I just, for for DIY recording guys, we just made a WordPress site, and I spent about four hours just trying to get like a consistent background and like two buttons where I wanted them. So <laughs> it can definitely be an intimidating uh, prospect. So cheers to you guys for uh, for tackling that. Absolutely. We can go wherever you want to go here. I did want to pick your brain a little bit on um, on the effect you think that. COVID has had on on indie artists and on on uh, you know obviously touring is at a has ground to a halt and that affects a lot of bands revenues. Uh, what have you seen from from your side and from your uh, from your industry? Well, I think the big one for me was um, Arctangent. Like mm, yeah. so the Arctangent festival was not going to go forward this this year for obvious reasons. Um, my wife was going to be playing that that um, this year. And she had to basically, you know, cancel her flights and figure out how she's going to accommodate that. And in fact, we—I I mean, I was going to be—I was going to be speaking at that festival as well, so I had to figure out what I was doing as well. Um, but the way that they dealt with it was through, um, yeah, I mean, it was a combination of like crowdfunding. Um, they they did a, a, a live stream, or they got all of their bands to submit um, uh, some sort of exclusive uh, performance. Uh, which they curated in um, sort of a, a watch party style event on social media. And I guess that's kind of been the norm. Like, you know, all of, you know, our business has, has gone to um, Zoom and Skype and live streaming. And I think that that's inevitably how, you know, musical performance has, has ended up. Um, yeah, we've basically just had to digitize everything. And yeah, I guess like, I mean, I'm seeing more and more uh, musicians turning to places like uh, like Discord and Twitch, and I think that that is probably going to be a pretty positive and quite uh, more prolific into the future. I think that's really going to take off. I think that that level of, of digital-style performance and communication with an audience is probably where things are going to go. But, um, I mean, like a lot of the bands that we talk to that we've been interviewing for, for features have said that this time has been a really good time to um, come up with new material, to come up with new ideas. And um, there's been a lot of uh, time for introspection as an artist and, and self-reflection. And hopefully that will foster, um, yeah, new ideas and, and new means of communicating and new material. Um, hopefully that time will, um, yeah, manifest in some, some really exciting music and some really exciting projects and ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. What What's the situation like in, in Australia right now in terms of uh, the prospect for live music coming back? Uh, it's uh, terrible. So I, um, I, I'm in Melbourne, um, which is the only state at the moment that's under lockdown. Okay. So um, we had a, a local outbreak here, uh, which has fortunately meant that we are in what's called stage four restrictions, where uh, we, we, we essentially can't leave a house uh, unless we're uh, picking up groceries. Um, we can have an hour of, of exercise. Um, we can't visit um, other people. Um, there's uh, very strict regulations around who, um, yeah, going going to other people's houses. Is that just in Melbourne? So or is that all of Victoria? No, uh, ju- just in Victoria. Sorry. So yeah. Okay. So the state uh, is um, is under lockdown. Oh, there's like it's it's slightly different for regional, um, but um, yeah, effectively the the state wow. is under lockdown. And um, yeah, as you can imagine, that's got huge ramifications, not just for music, but for, for all sure. businesses, for retail. Um, yeah, it's, it's very, um, very uncertain at the moment. That's tough because a lot of those, uh, like you said, retail and the restaurant industry, a lot of indie musicians who are trying to go full time making a living on music, those are the jobs they work in. So it could really, that's it really right. hurts yeah, a lot exactly. of artists from, from both sides. Yeah, Absolutely, yeah. 
Did you say, I actually, so I'm a bad interviewer because I should have asked you about you at the beginning of the interview, but you mentioned your wife was going to play at Arctangent. Is that right? Are, is she a musician? Are you a musician? Uh, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, my wife Kat is a musician. She was going to play, uh, she has her own project, uh, which is called Like the Low. And uh, she also plays uh, in a band who, funnily enough, are in Sydney, in, a, in another city uh, called Seams. Mm-hmm. So um, Seams and Like the Low are both scheduled to play uh, in Arctangent 2020, now 2021. Wow. Um, so she is, a, yeah, so she's she's the musician. I'm, I'm just the guy that likes to write. I mean, like, that's my whole life endeavor is writing. I, I just love making prose. So, you know, for me, like, Fergin Bahamas is definitely about writing. Okay. Okay, cool. I'm more of a, I, I'm more of a, uh, yeah, a, a journalist slash music nerd than, yeah, an actual performer. Okay. Well, since, um, I did want to ask you about that. We were talking a little bit in our email exchanges about, you know, how you kind of fell into math rock. And I, I mentioned a little bit how I fell into it. Maybe talk about just your your journey musically growing up, what you were what you listened to and what are you listening to today? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I to be one of those people who's like, oh, you know, I will listen to all types of music, but I, I mean, I do. I listen to all types of music. And I think that, like, for me growing up, underground music, uh, came into the play very quickly because I was a skateboarder and I got uh, a lot of inspiration about music through uh, skate videos. Mm. And um, one of the key bands um, uh, of that skate video culture um, that really got me into DIY uh, aesthetic and culture was Fagazi. Um, yeah. They've been one of one of my favorite bands uh, for you know my whole life. And so I think that. Fugazi were kind of like the key into uh, music that you know wasn't in like the top twenty or like was being put out by Sony. Like it was, yeah, kind of like a really exciting gateway into something that was uh, low to the ground. Um, was people, you know, talking to me on my own level, like not talking from you know a stage, and that was super exciting. And I guess like in terms of math rock. Um, through slowly being exposed to all sorts of punk and, um, and underground rock, uh, I came across a band called The Locust. And at the time, uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't really call them math rock or, or anything like that, but uh, in, a, in the magazine that I was reading, they were described as math rock. And something really resonated with me is uh, one of the things that uh, the guitarist Justin Pearson said, I think he was a guitarist. Um, he said that uh, we try and make music that isn't in 4-4 uh, and uh, makes no sense because conventional music makes me want to throw up. And <laughs> yeah, I guess that was kind of like the first time that I, I really sort of made an inquiry into like what is conventional and unconventional music. Mm. And like when you listen to a band like The Locust, it sounds like just cacophony, right? Like it just sounds like absolute noise. But when you really think about it from that, that perspective that, or that sentiment that he's putting forth, it's like, actually, wait a second this is actually highly calculated music. Like this is very intricate music. And so I kind of had like a, yeah, kind of an epiphany as a kid. Like actually, you know, when I'm hearing noise, I'm actually hearing something that's, there's intention behind that noise. Like there's something that's being communicated through that noise. And so I really got into more technical and more disjunctive types of music mm. through that whole process. And I think one of the key bands from, from there was a band called Roadside Monument, which I guess was probably like maybe the, the first math rocky sort of band. So that was probably around the late 90s. Like hmm. I listened to some of their stuff and it was very discordant, very sort of stop-start rhythms that I couldn't really follow. And the fact that I couldn't follow them made me more excited about it because it's like, oh, this is a puzzle. I've got to try and figure out this puzzle. They've, they've, they've just given me a couple of jigsaw pieces. And so that challenge of passing the music um, was what fascinated me, and that's eventually uh, that's how I got into into math rock, basically, and that's why that's what I still li- look for when I um, when I hear new bands. I'm looking for that that challenge. Absolutely, that that resonates with me very strongly, and I I have this uh, I have the same experience, and like I can remember, you know, driving in the car and listening to like mashuga or something like that, and like if I was able to tap out what they were doing, I was like, yes, success, like. 
that took me a yeah, month yeah, to, yeah. to kind of get the pattern there. That's what I was trying to explain to somebody. I remember one time it was like, yeah, imagine a guitar riff that if you heard it by itself, you would think was completely random gibberish, but now five guys are playing it perfectly in sync, right? That is like amazing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like the fact that you can bring in other people to, you know, to, to, to bring that message out is, is amazing. One thing that, that struck me too was that as a songwriter, if you're listening to this as a songwriter, taking off the shackles of you know the 4-4 kind of standard rhythm, standard chord progression was really kind of liberating because now like you can do anything. And like when you can do anything, it kind of supercharges your creativity in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this and then and there's an audience that really enjoys that. Right. Yeah. I I will say it. I also smiled when you said skateboarding because uh, I do remember one of the first uh like I got a cassette tape sometime in the late 90s of like some X Games soundtrack. And I remember there was like a Primus song on there. I think like Jerry was a race car driver or something. And I remember hearing those songs, which were like, I mean, Primus was kind of a mainstream man, but there there were songs on there that I would like, I've never heard stuff like that before in my life. And I remember being really kind of uh, moved by that. So so yeah, the skateboarding culture was was definitely big for that. Any final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, in terms of of our blog, um, yeah, if if people want to send us stuff, always always open to uh, hearing from people um yeah just obviously just keep it genuine um just try and yeah speak on our terms like we're, we're just normal guys um and i think that like in general i think that the game is changing in that social media and um and video streaming are becoming the key ways of of getting your content out there mm. i think that you know blogs serve a purpose in terms of creating print content um you know maybe premiering songs but i wouldn't i would say don't like don't treat us as like the gold standard i think that you know we can definitely help out artists but we're definitely not the be all and end all of getting getting your name out there i think musicians have a lot of power you know you know in themselves to get their their record out so i guess like maybe that's kind of like the key thing uh the key sentiment i would want to put out there is like we would definitely help people but you're you know you're you can do a lot um you know on your own terms and hopefully that's very empowering yeah, I think uh, you're absolutely right about that. I also think you're you're being a little bit modest, as I think you guys uh, <laughs> still uh, still do have a little bit of influence. What's what do you see as next for for Fecking Bahamas? What do you guys have uh, in your sights for the coming year? Um, we're doing a uh, we're going to be starting a um, uh, Instagram TV uh, talking to bands. So uh, in the next couple of months, we're going to be running some interviews with um, some of our good friends in uh, TTNG, Floral, um, uh, Town Portal, uh, a bunch of other math rock bands are going to be um, talking with us, which we're really excited about. Um, we're going to be putting out uh, a compilation, uh, which oh, I'm not going to say what the country is just yet, but we're, yeah, we've got a, another compilation in the works. Cool. Um, we're doing a lot of... Um, exploration around looking at the change between uh, 90s math rock and contemporary math rock mm. and how we've gone from this very sort of noise rock based sound to the sound that everyone knows today which is the tapping and the noodly sound uh, and trying to pick apart that so that's part of an investigative or sort of research based uh, project that we're working on um, yeah and then I guess like from day to day like we're just going to keep on like yeah curating bands um yeah setting up premieres and hopefully just like supporting the community i mean that's kind of that's that's what we do we're not really out to um you know be be an institution we're just um just getting involved and supporting a scene that's already pretty self-sufficient but you know we we like to add to that that's great yeah i think it's clearly a labor of love for you guys <laughs> definitely a labor of love yeah excited to see the uh the, the igtv stuff that sounds very cool where uh where can people find you and all of the wonderful work you guys are doing at uh at fb sure so um feckingbahamas.com is where you can go uh we have i mean for anyone that's uh kind of new to the game we have like a history section where you can check out like the history of math rock we have uh recently we put up like the the top 50 math rock albums of all time which yep. is kind of like a nice gateway into things um 
yeah, we have a map and all of these other things on there. We have a Bandcamp, fakingbahamas.bandcamp.com, uh, that have free compilations uh, from several different countries. So we do country-specific compilations. So if you're looking for mass rock in your country or a specific country, you can go and uh, download those. Um, as you said, we've got uh, a podcast as well, which is on like all of the streaming platforms. And um, yeah, uh, Instagram, Facebook. Um, yeah, check us out there as well. Well, Nick, thank you so much for your time and sharing some of your encyclopedic knowledge here with us. I very much appreciate it. It was fun. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Well, we're we're doing our first DIY showcase here, which you you guys listening probably don't know what this is because we don't really know what this is yet. <laughs> but yeah, Ben and I had this idea on uh, like an Instagram live call. We decided, hey, you know what would be fun is if we opened up this kind of DIY showcase. By the way, we that's like that could be a temporary name. We haven't discussed it yet, but we would uh, open this up for DIY musicians in our community who want to submit some of their productions to us. And today we have our first submission from a cool Philly band called Sleep Tactics. And I thought this would be a nice uh, episode to do this on because the episode you just heard was with Nick Hunter of my favorite music blog, Fecking Bahamas. And after the interview, Nick sent me an email. He was like, hey, check out these awesome bands. If you could include some of these in the show notes, that would be really great, which is so cool because he's he's a dude, as you heard, who genuinely loves music and genuinely wants to to promote uh, cool bands. So the first band on his list was his band Sleep Tactics. Nick is from Australia, and I'm from Philadelphia, Hmm. and Sleep Tactics is a band from Philadelphia. So they're in my backyard, and it took somebody from literally as far away from Philadelphia as you can get in this world. Pretty much. To (laughs) to bring them to my attention. But I've been listening to this album, and I love it. It's... um, it's a fantastic album, and I actually met up with Dan Smith, uh, who's the the mastermind behind it, last weekend, and kind of just we just met up for a beer outdoors in Philly, and um, it was great. So this band almost was disqualified from DIY Showcase. Uh, here's here's the story quickly: <laughs> is uh, it's a, it's a trio, and the band was recorded and mixed by the drummer Matt Weber. It turns out, talking to Dan, I learned that Matt Weber is actually kind of a, a professional engineer who works in, <laughs> in the studio. Okay, okay. So I was like, okay, this almost disqualifies them from D- being DIY. But then I learned that, that Dan Smith actually played every single instrument and did the vocals on this album. So it's all him. And if that doesn't qualify him for DIY, then honestly, I'm not sure what what does. <laughs> So they were back in. They're, yeah. they're back in the running for DIY Showcase. Uh, Dan sent us a couple of notes as well. So so Dan is yeah. was primarily a drummer. He was in the band Fight Amputation. And he was kind of writing these songs. You know, he, he, it's funny because he talks about this. Actually, I'm curious what you think about this, Ben. But he talks about being a drummer and like being a good drummer and being in high demand, but not being in projects where he has a lot of creative control, right? Where he could be the primary songwriter mm-hmm. and, and Dan's a multi-instrumentalist. So he wanted some of that control. Uh, at least he wanted that opportunity to, to write some music. Uh, yeah, I'll just let, open that up to you quickly. You have any comments on that being a bass player yeah, and a drummer? Is that Have you ever found yourself in that situation? Well, I'm glad that you brought that up because that's the thing that jumped out to me as well because I, I relate to that so much. And... I think what he's kind of hinting on, I, I don't know what his age is or how long he's been He's actually in almost the scene. exactly your age, I think. It's like early to mid-30s, okay. yeah. That makes a lot of sense because, you know, what I'll say is like the music industry is, it's different than the corporate um, careers that both me and you have had mm-hmm. in, previous li- in previous lives. Uh, it's very different, but the one way that it is the same is that you kind of climb the ladder in similar ways, whether you're playing as an individual or as a band. And one thing that I found quickly, you know, getting getting a gig to play with a pretty big rock star in Lacey Sturm mm-hmm. was that you kind of get recognized for your talent on a specific thing. And so I guess you have a choice to make. Like you either can play for other people, maybe above your above your experience level a little bit just based on the skill that you have 
So I think that's kind of what Dan's hinting at as well. Like him as a drummer and being a good drummer, he's going to be in a lot more high demand for maybe more established bands that are out there already and already have established music and songs written. Mm. Whereas to kind of do the whole garage band, start a project from scratch, that's more kind of a a young guy's game or a young kid's game. <laughs> a lot of those, I mean, a lot of the bands that are have been around for a while and successful, like they've started when they were 18 and 19. And so if you think about by the time you're in your 30s looking for projects to join, a lot of these projects that are out there that have been successful, I mean, there, there are always exceptions to the rule, but they've been trying to be successful for 10 years. Uh, it's hard to join a project like that and, and get the same right. get your creative, creative input, control. Yeah. yeah. So I, I've definitely found that whenever, you know, even joining Lacey and this isn't like a, a rip on that situation whatsoever. But I mean, she had 15 years plus of songwriting experience right. and successful songwriting like, experience. Obviously. Yeah. Exactly. So I'm more than honored to be asked to play bass and just just to have my creative voice heard as far as make up some creative bass lines. Like that's awesome, but you're gonna have to fight a little bit more or maybe have to take a step back to start your own project if you want to get maybe more of your own songwriting ideas out there. So that's all I'll say about that. But that's a great point. It's definitely an interesting thing to keep in mind whether in deciding to go into the music industry and deciding what you want to do. That's exactly what you described as exactly the the sense I got from from talking to Dan was he was kind of like writing these songs and and he wanted to to give it a go. Um I asked him also, you know, what his biggest challenge was or what some of his biggest challenges were. And I'm just going to read this cuz I think he summarized it pretty well. He said there were tons of challenges as anyone who has made a record knows. But staying the course for six years was the most challenging aspect. So it took him basically six years from hmm. kind of, okay, this is going to be a record until the time it was available. He also did the cover art himself. He's also like a graphic designer. So Oh, really? Yeah. So he, he this is really his, his baby here. So yeah, so he said, uh, staying the course for six years was the most challenging aspect. Following through on something that you have pretty much kept a secret and you could just as easily leave sitting on the shelf, right? Which is, which is true. Right. Uh, I was also horrified at the thought of releasing the record because it was sort of my quote-unquote debut as a main quote-unquote vocalist, he says. I was learning how to write melodies for the first time on this album, basically just paying close attention to vocalists that I admired and what they did. And this was interesting. He says, looking back, a thought that seems weird to me currently was that I used to be mystified about how vocals were written. <laughs> so, which is, you can, you can interpret that kind of a couple different ways, but that if, if you've ever tried writing vocal melodies as a non-vocalist, you probably understand uh, the challenge involved there. Dan is a vocalist, as, you, as you'll hear. But anyway, he says, the actual performance of the vocals was the biggest technical challenge about making the record, which is interesting. Mm, yeah, I can relate to that. I mean, a, a lot of times, like, I'll write an entire song and then I come to vocals and it's just like, well, I'll just put this on the shelf until <laughs> I feel motivated to write it again. But it's funny how like if you only work on instruments, melodies come and riffs come so easily, but vocals is like a different, it's just a different thing. Yeah, it is. It's a different thing. And recording them is is tricky, especially if you're a perfectionist and you're used to getting really good takes and you're not used to being a main vocalist. I could see that being very challenging. So big kudos to Dan for finishing this project after six yes. years, getting it out there, putting that finishing touch on it, I'm sure, Dan, if you're listening, you learned a ton, and I'm sure it's not the last we've heard from you. So let's check out the song. This is, I asked Dan to, to pick kind of a 60-second segment, and he actually picked one from my favorite song on the record. This song is track three off the, the debut record, which is, I think, Sleep Tactics or S slash T. You can get it on Bandcamp. Uh, so check out this uh, 60 second clip from track three, which is called Anatomy of a Lesson Learned.
All right, Ben. Well, I'm gonna. I've heard this before. I've listened to this whole record multiple times. So I'm gonna. I'm gonna kick it over to you first. Tell me. Give okay. me your thoughts. The first thing I like to do when I listen to a band is like I try to think of what does this remind me and stylistically what elements do I think they're pulling from or genre. Mm-hmm. And uh, full disclosure, as I told Vadim before we started here, um, I don't really listen to too much music in this style, so I don't want to be too critical and. Some of my references that I'm pulling from might, you might uh, have heard of those bands and be like, why, why did you pick that? It doesn't sound <laughs> anything like that. But, <laughs> but the first two bands I thought of um, that this sounded a lot like to me was first Silver Sun Pickups. Hmm. I don't know if you've heard of them yeah. before. I think mostly vocally and also the drums, they remind me a lot of that, that kind of style. And for some reason, also Queens of the Stone Age. Hmm. And I don't know why I thought of that first, but um, I went to Spotify and listened to a couple Queens of the Stone Age songs just to see, and they sound nothing like Queens <laughs> of the Stone Age. So I don't know why. I don't know why I thought that. I was gonna say, but, yeah, it's uh, a bit of a different aesthetic to me. But uh, go ahead. Yeah, I wonder if it's the um, the drums once again reminded me because the drums on the Queen stuff are a lot more dry and live sounding, mm. which I thought was kind of the style of this record as well. Um, I'll just go down through the rest of my notes yeah. really quick and then maybe we can dive in a little bit more. So I know being a drummer and not being so sure about the vocals, but I thought his vocals were pretty great mm. on this song. Like I couldn't necessarily tell that he wasn't a vocalist. So good job, Dan. Uh, very nice haunting vocal parts. I, I just like the vibe of them a lot. It didn't just sound like somebody singing over top of music it actually sounded like you developed a bit of a sound a bit of a vibe especially in rock music it's almost more important for it to have a good vibe than for it to sound really good or you know be in tune Mm -hmm. so i mean that's that's important too but the vibe is super important and you nailed it nice variety of vocal styles there's everything from screams to kind of more whispery parts to just normal belting and yeah, it's it's really cool. Instrumentally, the bass stood out to me as kind of being the lead instrument, I thought, mm. and kind of just driving the rhythms forward, which I thought was kind of cool. And me as a bass player, I kind of enjoy hearing that. There's a few bands out there that are kind of like that, where the maybe the guitars are kind of playing around the chord a little bit or doing more lead type of stuff, and then it's up to the bass to kind of drive home what the root notes are or the rhythms. And so I'm a big fan of that. Speaking of rhythms, I really loved all the kind of odd time signatures and proggy elements. And once again, great job at incorporating prog without making it sound too weird. (laughs) So it's like, it's still very accessible and it doesn't sound like out of place or just, what's the word? Um... I don't know, just for the sake of doing odd times. That's so funny. I, I got to jump in because this is when I first emailed Dan after I listened to the record and I was like, holy, holy crap, I really like this record. That's exactly what I said to him was I said he's uh, achieved complexity that's not just for the sake of complexity. Like it's it's very yeah. listenable, even though with the odd time signatures and some of the meter changes and, and whatever else is going on. But it's not just complex for the sake of complexity, which is kind of like a pet peeve of mine because I love Prague. We both do. But I don't like when things are just comp- they're just difficult just because like they wanted to make it difficult to listen to. <laughs> yeah. It might help him as well being not only, I mean, he played all the instruments, but especially being the vocalist and the drummer because a lot, I felt like a lot of the most odd time signature parts in the song were kind of following the vocals and not just the melody, but the phrasing. Mm. And I think whenever you kind of combine those two things, it helps the listener not think that they're so weird. Right. As, especially at being vocal, because even if you're not an instrumentalist, you're like, oh, they're just, everybody's following the vocals here. So I don't know if that was done on purpose or just like um, a side effect of the songwriting style, but I, I really like that a lot. Right um, as far as the mix goes, I thought everything was balanced overall pretty well the instruments had a very live feel especially the drums which was cool like i felt like i was in the room with everybody while they were kind of jamming right too yep which is really dope so it was kind of this like hybrid 
feel of like it didn't sound like a live album and it didn't sound like a studio album it sounded like a live performance in a studio ah so but well that's said. really cool i like that the only critiques i have are i felt like the guitars are so clean i felt like they were maybe a little bit loud hmm. in the mix and i will and i will add too i've listened to this song both in my um on headphones i just listened to the, to it on headphones and then i listened to it on my monitors in my studio and I felt like the guitars were still a little bit loud for me in, in both scenarios, but they made more sense in headphones than they did mm, interesting. On, on my monitors. Because when I listen to it on my monitors, uh, the vocals feel very buried behind everything. But on headphones, the vocals kind of poke through. And I wonder if it's because there's pretty much only kick drum, snare, bass, and vocal in the middle. And everything is panned mm. pretty wide. And so on headphones, the vocals kind of sit right in there and it's very easy to hear everything. But on monitors, I felt like the vocals are kind of like just sitting underneath the music a little bit. And once again, that might just be a stylistic choice because I've heard bands that kind of do that type of a thing. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting observation. Personally, I think that was a stylistic decision and I do listen to more music in this genre, especially bands from the like 90s, like Farrakat and stuff like that. I don't know if I'm saying that mm. correctly, but that is kind of a, a staple of the genre, even more like contemporary bands like Torch, where the guitars are loud. Like Helmet is another one, right? The guitars are wide and loud, and the vocals are kind of set back a little bit. So as opposed to like a pop genre where the vocals are the biggest thing on earth there. So yeah. I do think that was a conscious decision. I agree with you that um, that's actually one of my positive notes was that the vocals were set back in the mix. Uh, like the guitars are obviously huge and massive. Well, even though they're clean guitars, the vocals are set back, but I thought they were still clean. They were still like coming through. I didn't feel like I was not able to hear them. I think it was the intention of the production. That's that's a good note too, because yeah, they weren't being masked right. by anything else in there. They still were coming through clear, just volume wise compared to everything else. They were just set back a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, some of my other notes match yours very closely. I love the, you know, again, now, especially since we've talked about knowing that it took six years to make this happen, I wrote down band feel. Like, it does, it feels like a band playing together, which is very cool mm -hmm. that they were mm -hmm. able to achieve that, you know, with a record taking six years to make. I really like the uh, evolution of the the guitar layers. I don't know if it's just an effect or if they went from like double tracking to quad tracking, but there's that point where like there's like a almost like an arpeggio or a you know plucked individually plucked chord that gets like thicker and fuller. And I thought that was a nice production touch to like elevate the energy of the song. And uh, yeah, same thing with throwing in the background vocals on the sides to again fill out those mm -hmm. guitars. It was like the production is big and all of a sudden it gets bigger, which is uh, a nice touch. Um, I think that that type, those types of little production things to me in, show a lot of like maturity on uh, producing songs when you're able to kind of build and evolve parts throughout the song. Uh, so I really enjoyed that. And uh, I really like the subtle delay effect that was introduced on the main vocal. Um, that was very cool. In general, one of my favorite things about this album is the space mm -hmm. that's created and again, for me, this is a bit more nostalgic as, as well because I listen to a, a lot of bands like this. And um, this album, listening through the whole album, I felt very much this atmosphere that I associate positively with. I really think they kind of nailed that aesthetic. Even like, I, you know, I mentioned the band Soundgarden to Dan, not so much because mm -hmm. the sound is like them, but it's this idea of creating a little world on an album that. I really got here, so I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I think it's it's well done. Uh, again, this is you know Matt Matt Weber. Just kudos to him for engineering and mixing this, and also being the official drummer of the band. Uh, if you're listening to this, don't be intimidated if your stuff doesn't sound as good as Matt's. This is what Matt does. So <laughs> these guys, uh, this is almost like yeah, it's kind of like I said, they were almost disqualified from being too pro to be to be DIY. But uh, yeah, if if you guys want your song showcased email us either at ben at diyrecordingguys.com or vadim at diyrecordingguys.com we would love to play some of your productions and talk about them yeah great guys so send them in we'd love to talk about it cool you got anything else to to add so just so the listeners know this is an eight minute song and 
to Dan's credit, it does not feel like an eight minute song. Basically, the first half of it is, I would say, like a kind of traditional song format and presenting the idea. And then the rest of it, the next four minutes is just instrumental where it feels like the instruments just kind of get a lot more chaotic. And it's cool because the way it made me feel was that, you know, you have this person almost like being in a conversation with an individual and this person's telling you Hmm. some way about how they feel about the world. And then maybe they're frustrated because nobody's listening. And so, well, then I'm going to take it out on you with my instruments, which is really cool. Oh man. (laughs) Yeah. That's a great observation, Ben. Yeah. That's, you're right. And actually it's so funny, man, because this is another one of the things I emailed Dan originally was like, I said, some bands have three minute songs that feel like eight minute songs. And you guys have eight minute songs that feel like three minute songs. So I had that same note. And yeah, this is like the second, I think this is the second longest song on the, on the record. Uh, but yeah, the band is Sleep Tactics from Philadelphia. You can check them out on bandcamp.com. And remember to check yourself before you wreck yourself. All right. If you're enjoying the podcast, take a minute to leave a rating wherever you like to listen to it or share it with your friends on social media. Also, Benjamin and I are working engineers and we love helping people turn ideas into finished productions. So if you're interested in working with one of us or just want to discuss a project you're working on, reach out. You can find my work at calmfrogrecording.com. Get me on Instagram at calmfrogrecording or shoot me an email, vk at calmfrogrecording.com. And you can check Benjamin's workout at dreamloudstudio.com. Hit him up on Instagram at dreamloudstudio or by email, ben at dreamloudstudio.com. And finally, join our Facebook group to engage with a whole group of friendly, like-minded people who are interested in DIY recording. Just search for DIY Recording Guys on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. I'll see you next week.